This afternoon we'll be um, looking at the doctrine as taught in Lord's Day 46. In connection with that, we have a couple of readings. So the first one is from Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Um, I won't say too much about context. They'll, uh, the reason for reading these will become apparent uh, during the sermon. So Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 25 to verse 30. Matthew eleven twenty-five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The next reading is from Ephesians, or sorry, not Ephesians, Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 23 to chapter 4, verse 7. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As far the reading of God's word. And finally, we'll read together Lord's Day 46. Lord's Day 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's on the screen. We'll read that responsively, so I'll read the question, and then together we will recite the answer. Lord's Day 46. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike trust, trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Why is there added in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner and to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul.
brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an old cliche to say that a picture is worth a thousand words. But it's a cliche because, well, it's true, isn't it? Pictures really can communicate a lot of information without any words at all. Well, this afternoon, I'd like to suggest to you that it's not only pictures that can communicate a thousand words, but it's actually words that can communicate a thousand words. Now, this sounds a bit awkward and pretty obvious, but it's also true. That's why we use metaphors. Life is a highway. You are my sunshine. Love is a battlefield. In just a few words, we communicate a lot of content. And did you notice that when I began this sermon and also this morning, I addressed you as brothers and sisters? And this becomes also a cliche. It's something we're used to hearing. But as much as we grow up hearing it from the pulpit, for me, standing up here, it's still relatively new to be saying it. And it's actually something I do very intentionally. It's not just sort of a, a, a cliched address or, or something that you just say so you can get to the next thing. But when I call you brothers and sisters, I'm actually communicating a lot with those few simple words. I'm communicating the closeness that comes from being bound together in a family. I'm communicating a certain sense of, of equality as we all stand here together before the throne of God. I'm communicating that even if we don't always all get along or argue that there are deeper ties that hold us together than just those things we agree on, agree on or not. And I'm communicating a love and affection that I feel both towards you all and feel from you all, despite the fact that I, I might not know some of you very well at all. Well, how much more true is this, how much more true is this about how we address God in prayer? There are a lot of ways that we can address God. He's our creator. He's our provider. He's the most high king of heaven and earth. He's our redeemer, our strength and our shield, our king. And, and the list goes on. There are a lot of ways we could address God. But in the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches us an address that sets an intimate tone for the rest of the prayer. Our Father in heaven. It's an address that, that in and of itself is al already an entire prayer. It's an address that communicates much more than its mere four words worth. And so when Jesus instructs us to begin our prayers with our Father in heaven, he's teaching us an address that's worth a thousand words. And that's the theme for the sermon, the address that's worth a thousand words. And again, there are three points. These are words of dependence, words of privilege, and words of guarantee. And so point number one, words of dependence. Jesus taught and revealed many beautiful things during his earthly ministry. But here at the beginning of the prayer which he taught us to pray, he reveals perhaps one of the most beautiful things that he taught, one of the most wonderful and comforting teacher, uh, teachings in all of Scripture that we can call God our Father. And now as Christians, if you grew up in the church, you're used to this. We've, we've grown up hearing it and saying it, and so it's easy for us to forget really how special this is. But listen to how Jesus describes this in Matthew eleven twenty seven, which we read before the sermon he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
It's only because Christ has chosen to reveal him to us that we can call God our Father. And this amazing truth, the Catechism says, is meant to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer, to awaken in us. Right away, the Catechism gets to the heart of the matter, to the inner matter of where our hearts should be in prayer. Most of us would probably admit that we're not totally satisfied with our prayer lives. We all know we could be doing more. Prayer often feels more like a duty than a delight, just another thing we have to do in a day. And so here the Catechism reinforces that prayer is, is not a duty. Neither is it a lecture or a performance, but it's heartfelt communication with our Father. And, and simply shifting our perspective on prayer so that we see it as something that we want to do instead of something that we have to do can make all the difference. Rather than seeing prayer as a duty with an agenda that we have to get through, even though sometimes in prayer we might have a regular sort of agenda that we do pray through, but rather than seeing it that way as, a, as like a meeting, as like a duty, we need to recognize prayer for what it is, a treasured time of communication with the Father. And this heart attitude is what the Catechism says should be basic to our entire prayers, this attitude of childlike trust and reverence. But the Catechism is right, isn't it, when it says that this attitude needs to be awakened in us? Because this is not a natural disposition for us. Our old nature has not been entirely put off, and, and so by nature, we want to be self-dependent creatures, don't we? We want to have the satisfaction of being self-made men and women. If there's something that needs doing, if there's a need, then we can do it. We don't need to depend on anyone but ourselves. But young children aren't like that. Young children have the gift of knowing that they are not self-dependent creatures. They do depend pretty much entirely on their parents for everything, and they're, and they're not ashamed of it. And so the Catechism identifies that we are meant to have this same sort of trust in our Father, in our Heavenly Father, as children do on their earthly parents. Young children trust their parents implicitly that they will protect, defend, and care for them. They know that their parents make decisions for them, and especially as they get older, they, they start to like that less. But they also trust that their parents are making decisions in their best interests. And young, children's don't, young children don't doubt that their parents love them. They don't doubt that their parents will protect them. That's why they come running when they, when they get hurt or when they're scared. There's no doubt in their minds that their parents will, will sweep them up in their arms and protect them and comfort them. And children also reverence their parents, and I think especially their fathers. I know, again, it's a bit cliche, but, but how many boys especially have, have not engaged in some version of the old playground argument, my dad is stronger than your dad. A little while back, we were watching a movie together as a family, and seeing this supernaturally strong character on the screen, my son exclaimed, Daddy, he's even stronger than you. Now, I, I gently corrected him. But, but young kids think their dads can do anything. And that's the attitude that we're supposed to have in prayer, a posture of reverence and absolute dependence. We're not bowing before some, some distant deity or some capricious and cruel tyrant 
No, we're bowing before our Father in heaven. He's bigger, better, and stronger than any earthly father. He loves us more fiercely, understands us more deeply, and delights in us more fully. And so how can we not want to spend time with a father like that? But notice how the Lord's Day started with the question, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our father? Commanded. That sounds like such a strong word to describe what Jesus is doing in Matthew 6 when he teaches the disciples the Lord's Prayer. It seems like we're being given an 11th commandment. And does this mean that we must always address God in prayer this way? If, if we're honest, we probably would, would have to think back and, and admit that we don't, that we've addressed God in other ways in prayer, and that there are plenty of, of saints who have gone before us who have also addressed God in other ways in prayer. So why such a strong word here, commanded? But remember, dear brothers and sisters, that his commandments are not burdensome. That his yoke is easy and his burden is light. God's commandments are given out of love to teach his children to depend on him. Just like in the wilderness at Sinai, God did not give the Israelites the Ten Commandments to to burden them down, but to teach his people to leave behind their old, self-sufficient ways so that they could depend entirely on him. And knowing our hearts, knowing that we would be prone to disbelieve that we really can call God our Father, Christ commands us to do it for our own benefit. It might seem really pious to say, oh, I'm just so unworthy to be called a child of God. I can't refer to him as my father. I'm too sinful and he's too holy. But we can never let a sense of piety stand in the way of obeying Christ. Still yet for others, the idea of God as a father might be really challenging. Perhaps you grew up with a weak father or an abusive father or with no father at all. The pain and damage that can be caused by that kind of thing should not be underestimated, and and we can all sympathize with those for whom father is, is a really difficult title. But again, beloved, sympathy does not trump scripture. If we refuse to call God our father for whatever reason, we are disobeying him and we are making the work of Christ to be of no effect. No false humility or piety or or any genuine hurt or any other reason can be an excuse for us to disobey this command of Christ. Because as we're about to see, because of the work of Christ, we really and truly do have the privilege of calling God our Father, our perfect Father in Christ. Which brings us to point two, words of privilege. The second half of that first question and answer there, 120, expresses the incredible truth that God has become our Father through Christ. We read about this in Galatians 4, and and Jesus himself taught this truth to his disciples in Matthew 11, and of course in the Lord's Prayer. And this is such a stark difference from other major faiths of today. Think about Islam, for example. The Muslims boast about having, having 99 names for Allah. In fact, one of their religious texts says this, Allah has 99 names, 100 less one, and he who memorizes them by heart will enter 
paradise. So there's a great importance placed on Allah's names and knowing those names. But of all those 99 names, Father isn't one of them. Many of them are beautiful sounding, but Muslims will not call Allah their father. He's simply too transcendent, too distant for them to do that. But in contrast to that, Jesus uses the word father 170 times to refer to God in the Gospels. And while this idea was not original to Jesus, it's already present in the Old Testament, he deepened it and made it more intimate than than anyone else before him would have dared to do. Because when Jesus addressed God as father, he didn't mean it in simply sort of an authoritative way that God is above us and we obey him. He meant it in the most intimate, familiar way. The extraordinary thing that Jesus did is call God Abba, Father. Abba. It's a term of intimacy and warmth. Now you may have heard that Abba is sort of the equivalent to our baby talk word, Daddy. Uh, And in some ways this is true. Abba is sort of one of the first words that Arabic-speaking or Aramaic-speaking children will, will say and they'll use for their fathers. And it's used in the same way that young children will use the word Daddy in English. But at the same time, it's not quite true to say that they're the same thing. It's not true that Jesus was teaching us to call God Daddy. Because Abba is more than just baby talk. It was, and still is today, a term that continues to be used by adults as they, as they mature. It communicates that childlike adoration and trust, but, but also mature respect and submission. It implies both complete trust and complete surrender to the will of the Father, even while it remains a word of of everyday use. We have no real direct one-for-one English equivalent, but probably the closest that we can come in English would be to say, dear Father, dear Father. And And the New Testament elaborates on this incredible truth that God has become our Father in a much more intimate way than the ancient world understood. See, while the ancient world often also called their deities, their fathers, and their mothers, the New Testament teaches us that that God is not our father because he created us or because of some sketchy behavior on the part of the gods, but because of Christ. By nature, we're not children of God. The idea that all humans are God's sons and daughters is actually not found anywhere in Scripture. Instead, the Bible teaches us that we're all children of wrath. And Jesus never taught that all humans are God's sons and daughters. Instead, instances where Jesus calls God your father are only ever said to the disciples. He never never says it to outsiders. God is the father to all. God the father, first person of the Trinity. But he is not our father to all. And that's because being a child of God is not something that we have by virtue of our natural birth, but something that we have by virtue of our supernatural rebirth in Christ. God the Father is only God your Father to those who have believed in his Son. And for those who have believed in his Son, this truth is the crowning jewel of the whole gospel. It's what Bible teacher J.I. Packer called the highest privilege of the gospel. Justification, being made right with God because of what Jesus did for us, that's the foundation. We need to be made right 
with God. But God didn't stop there. He made it even better. He went even further. He has not only forgiven us, but adopted us to be his sons through belief in his son, Jesus Christ. Adopted us. And the Bible uses the word sons. You may have noticed that in Galatians. We're all called sons, whether we are male or female, to refer to our adopted state under Christ. And that's because in the ancient Roman world, sons are the ones who received all the inheritance. And so if you were adopted to be a son in the ancient Roman world, that meant that you were receiving an inheritance. Because if a son, then also an heir. And in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, we read that God sent his son to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. And he sent his spirit into our hearts so that we can cry out with the same intimacy as Christ, Abba, dear Father. When God the Father sees us, he sees Christ. When he looks at Christ and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, he says the same to you and me. What is Christ's is ours. His suffering, his obedience, his death, his resurrection, even his glory. The Father adopted us so that we might become fellow heirs with Christ to see and share in the glory in which our Savior already stands. What is Christ's is ours. And this is the foundation upon which we stand, not sonship by, by nature, but adoption by grace. This is the foundation upon which we can trust that God will certainly hear our prayers. Not because we are so good or obedient or lovable, we're not, but because Jesus is. And because that same Jesus continues to intercede for us before the Father. And so therefore, the Catechism says, he will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith than our Father's will refuse us earthly things. Now it's important to understand that this, this doesn't just mean that God will just give us whatever we want. Even wise earthly parents know that sometimes they must deny their children what they are asking for because they know it's not good for them. How much more wise is God? And though this is by no means easy, if the Father is denying us something that we are asking for, then we, we trust that he's doing it for our good. We can be sure. And how can we know that? How can we continue to trust him when we ask and ask and ask and it seems like we're not getting any answer at all? Because he's already proven how far he's willing to go in his generosity to us. Because he did not deny us even his own son. It's striking that in all the prayers of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospels, Jesus addressed God as Father, all that is, except for one, is cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though the Father did not cease to be Jesus' Father for even, for even one instant, yet there on the cross, as Christ willingly endured the wrath of the holy God against the sins of the whole human race, he was denied the tender care of the Father. Jesus endured the anguish of being denied his Father's help so that we would never be denied it. So that we can have the privilege of coming boldly to him in prayer 
as his adopted children, knowing that because he denied his son, he will never deny us. Which brings us to point three, words of guarantee. Earthly parents are bound by what they are able to do for their children. Often they would like to do much more, but but they can't. But God is not bound by any such restrictions in answering our prayers. He never finds himself in a situation where he really wishes he could help us out, but, but his hands are tied, or he just doesn't have the power to do it. And that's because this incredible father is, importantly, our father in heaven. Question and answer 121. Why is there added in heaven? Answer. These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. Now it seems, doesn't it, like, like all of the wonderful intimacy that we were just talking about is sort of lost with this addition. God is in heaven where we are not. We can't see him. He's distant. And so should we take this as a reminder from Jesus not to, not to get too comfortable? I think too often we think of these words as creating distance. Like, remember, God's not your buddy. Remember, he's holy. And this is, this is of course, True, God is not our buddy. God is holy. The casual approach to prayer advocated by some Christians, which, which says we should begin prayer with something like, hey, Dad, is something that, that we should probably avoid. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And so that warning is there. But I don't think it's the main point because the catechism's already dealt with this when it dealt with the third commandment in Lord's Day 36. But when that is the way that we focus on this question and answer, that this creates distance, then really the comfort that we just basked in is, is really dampened, isn't it? If not totally destroyed. But that's, that's not ever what the catechism sets out to do. Remember, the catechism is written within the framework of comfort. What is your only comfort in life and death? What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And so here again, we're being shown how the wonderful truths of God's word should comfort us. And the rest of the answer to question 121 really abolishes any thought that intimacy is being snatched away. We need to be sure to keep reading to see what the catechism means when it says that we shouldn't think of his heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. It's, it's not that we should remember sort of to, to tremble because he's holy, but that, should we, that we should remember not to doubt that he can do what we ask, that we don't think that he's unable to meet our every need. And, and more than that, that we don't start to think of God in other earthly ways, that he's unfair, that he's biased, that he picks favorites, that he's sort of sick and tired of of hearing the same old requests from you. These are all earthly ways of of thinking of God, and the catechism is saying, don't do it. That's not true about God. The truth is so much better. Because we can expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. In other words, don't think that you can ask away and that God is well-intentioned, but that he might let you down just like an earthly father might. Instead, remember that God in heaven is the almighty creator of heaven and earth, and that he not only can but will meet your every need. 
of body and soul. And how can he do this? Well, by his almighty power. These are the key words of this question and answer. These are the words which should give us all the confidence in the world. This is the almighty God who out of nothing created all reality just by a word. This is the almighty, powerful God who by a word puts all his enemies to, fl- to flight, who by one little word shall fell the devil. Psalm 29 tells us of this incredible power. The voice of the Lord is powerful. It breaks the cedars. It flashes forth flames of fire. It shakes the wilderness and strips the forest bare. This is the Lord who sits enthroned forever and who hears your prayers. This is the God who can do anything. And this is the God whose heart is full of mercy and compassion toward us. This is the God who is on our side. And if he's on our side, who can stand against us? What a comfort. And therefore, the catechism says that we should expect from him all things we need for body and soul. Expect. Brothers and sisters, you can expect it. He will take care of you. He will always act in your best interests. So pray confidently. And then also learn to wait. Because because we can expect him to answer, this also teaches us to wait patiently. In fact, that should be a regular prayer of ours. ours. Father, teach me to wait. And waiting is incredibly difficult, and it's where the devil attacks us. Does God really hear? Will he really answer you? Wouldn't it be better if you just took matters into your own hands? All your praying is useless. We pray, oh Father, teach us to wait. Because the words in heaven also give us a heavenly perspective. Our, our problems might look overwhelming. A low view under the sun, as Ecclesiastes puts it, might cause us to despair. But the view from heaven is much different. The mountains are molehills. The giants are ants. The days are but minutes. The God who sits enthroned in heaven laughs at the kings of the earth and their schemes. This is the Father who hears and answers our prayers. Nothing is outside of his ability and control to give. If he can create the universe out of nothing, if he can can direct the course of world history to bring his son into the world at the perfect time, if he can raise the dead to new life, then he can answer your need. Well, it's already been a bit more than a thousand words. seems my theme was understating the point. To conclude... I'd like to turn to Psalm 131. It's up there on the screen. Psalm 131, verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. God's ways are not our ways. His wisdom is infinite and his power is almighty. He sometimes even often answers prayers in ways that we wouldn't if we were in charge. Thankfully, we are not in charge because God's thoughts are much higher than our thoughts, his ways much too great and marvelous for us. Verse 2, 
but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Let us pray that we can have the same attitude of the psalmist, that we have learned to trust, that we have quieted our souls like a child who has been weaned. A child who is being weaned will cry out in confusion and anger and fear because they want something and they're not receiving it and they don't know why. But a weaned child has learned to trust that his mother does hear him, that she will answer him, that he can trust her even when the waiting is hard. Let us pray that we can develop that same trust in our Heavenly Father, for he is both willing and able to answer our every need, and he will do it because of Christ, guaranteed. O Israel, O church, hope in the Lord, your dear Father, from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Dear Father, we love you and we trust you. You are the God in heaven, the one who created heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. You're the God who speaks and it happens, who acts and never fails to succeed, who commands and all the heavenly hosts kneel before you. Father, we thank you for your grace We thank you for adopting us. Thank you for Jesus who denied himself your help and favor so that we might never be denied it. Help us to trust that we really can call you Father, that you really have made yourself that intimate and available to us. We're so prone to doubt this. Father, help us not to doubt what you have said is true and certain. And Lord, not doubting this, help us also not to doubt your power, not to doubt that you can do it. Waiting for unanswered prayers can be so, so hard. And some of us have been praying unanswered prayers for what feels like so long. Help us to trust you even when we don't get the answers we hoped for, even when we must wait and wait and wait on you. Father, we know the right answers, that, that you have our best interests in mind, that you are working all things for our good, and we believe these things, but it can be so hard to also believe these things with our hearts. And so help us. We're not strong enough on our own. Shower the grace and help of your Spirit upon us so that we learn evermore to trust in you. And we bring all these things to you, trusting that you hear us, that you have the power to answer us, and that you will by no means deny us all things that we need for body and soul, all for the sake of Christ our Savior. Amen.